This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Twisted Truth and Lies. This is kind of an interesting story, right, Jason? Uh, yeah. In, in Bloomberg Business Week. Well, it, if you just look at the headline, how Facebook helps <laughs> shady advertisers sell fake Elon smart pills. I mean, yeah, that, that all uh, had me in right there. All right. Well, Zeke Fox wrote the story for this week's uh, Bloomberg Business Week. Here to tell us about it, though, is Nick Summers, who is editor at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell me about this story a little bit. And this has to do with affiliate marketing, which... Remind us what that is. Yeah, uh, so this story was in the works for about, for about a year. Uh, it's about the people who enable all of the crappy, spammy, shady <laughs> advertising that you get on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, across a lot of, of the Internet. This is stuff like, yeah, uh, fake brain pills, uh, male enhancement. Um, What's the black mask? It, <laughs> yeah, Jason, you'll have to tell us what exactly what that was. What is that? It was a black mask face peel, and it was supposed to be very effective. And, of course, I fell for the advertising because they just bombarded me. I don't know why. I've never bought a cosmetic other than something on Amazon, I think. So, anyway, I I'm I here in high maintenance, my... but we'll have to find out about that well, a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, a little you're bit, you're yeah, not going to appreciate the headline in print, which which is about what Facebook does. The, the headline in print was, they go out and find the morons for me. Uh, <laughs> it's about how effective Facebook's uh, algorithms are at, at, um, at matching up these these ads for these dodgy products and matching them up with people uh, who will actually click and, and buy. The this, amount of money is incredible. This Barry Diller, I think, about a week or so ago, I think was in an interview, either was it Vanity Fair or something, but he was talking about targeted marketing, right? And we're kind of at the holy grail of advertising that we're, you know, with the algorithms and all the data on people that you can really target ads to people who are going to jump on something, whether it's a news story or whether it's a device. And that's what this kind of digs into. Yeah, there's actually an interesting parallel to the furor over Cambridge Analytica, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, one is about sort of uh, changing people's political views. One is about selling them, you know, fake diet pills. But the commonality is that Facebook is so big, so powerful, so good at matching up uh, people with um, uh, w w with these campaigns that anybody who lacks scruples and knows how to get into the system uh, can just wreak havoc or make money on an incredible scale, one that we're really not prepared to deal with. Well, one of the industry leaders that, that Zeke kind of pulls out in here kind of pulls out also the duality of Facebook because Facebook has actually asked this affiliate who's very successful at selling bad products. In, they've invited him to the company's London office to explain the latest affiliate tricks. So it seems like almost like um, I don't want to say dealer and and but but there seems to be a real black hat white hat situation with Facebook because of the power that it has. But it's also enabling the misuse of that power. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, Facebook doesn't want this stuff on their platform. They would prefer it if there weren't these, these scammy ads. But look, they do make a lot of money for it. The guy you just mentioned in the story, he estimates uh, that he that, that his, the people who use his software put $400 million worth of ads on, on Facebook every year and more mm. on, on other platforms. Um, so, you know, Facebook, uh, very publicly they say they hate this stuff, they want to get rid of it, but they're also uh, making a lot of money, and it is very, very effective. Hey, Nick, to be fair, though, I mean, Amazon does it too, correct? There are others who are out there doing this. Yeah, affiliate marketing is not unique to Facebook. It, it's used to boost uh, Amazon, eBay, a lot of a lot of other, other businesses. Um, where this gets interesting is where, you know, Facebook is, just, is, is at the absolute center of this drama right now over trust 
in life, whether it's whether can you trust the headlines you see, can you trust the ads you see, um, it taps into something that is probably d- deeply broken with social media and the way we communicate today. Mm-hmm. But but Nick, uh, the, Facebook owns Instagram, and it seems to have walled off Instagram when it comes to the infiltration of these ads in, in a way, or is it just not as lucrative there? Uh, it's there a little bit smaller, um, but honestly, I, I, I wouldn't count it out. I, I would expect, um, you know, Instagram is a growing popular network. I imagine the money will, will, will follow. I would, I would absolutely not rule out Instagram as a place for this kind of stuff. What's Facebook going to do? What do they say? They say they've got new initiatives to, to, to fight this. They say they're using AI to crack down. Um, they've got new uh, tools to defeat cloaking. Uh, cloaking is when um, a, a person who wants to run a shady ad um, in the review process, they'll show a clean ad to Facebook's reviewers because they can tell where they're logging in from. Uh, and, the, and the actual users, you and me, will see the, the, the crappy ad. Uh, Facebook says they're getting better at detecting that. Okay, this is a great story. Zeke did a lot of reporting on it, a lot of traveling on it. i got to ask you, Nick, as somebody who has approved expense reports myself, anything <laughs> in that expense report that kind of stood out? <laughs> uh, well, when, when Zeke pitched us this story, he did mention that he would need to go to Ibiza to, to complete yeah. the reporting. Um, but, yeah, how'd uh, that go in the pitch meeting? <laughs> you know, Zeke, Zeke hits home runs uh, every single time. Um, he also has a terrific byline. Uh, it's a, uh, his, his last name is Fox, but it's spelled F-A-U-X. It's a great right. apt <laughs> matchup of writer and subject. But um, he actually did not make it to Ibiza. I believe he was called home between Berlin and Ibiza because of a child care issue, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he didn't actually set foot on, on the island. Part, did you have to hold it? Everyone. Sorry, Nick. But did you have to hold anything back? Because uh, Carol and I were talking that it does got, have this Wolf of Wall Street kind of vibe. Anything that you had to be like, eh, we're just not going to put that one in the story. Uh, I believe it's got it's, it's got everything. I mean, because you know, the, these affiliates, they're they're proud of of, of what they do. Um, yeah. You know, the, the the story opens up with this uh, sales conference in Berlin. You almost wouldn't believe that it that, that it happened, but it absolutely did. It's it's this gathering, um, almost like out of the beginning of a Bond film, right. where all these internet narrative wells are gathered in, in in real life. It's like the scams come through the screen into the real world. It's brain pill sellers. It's the people who don't give it all away. Uh, <laughs> They're going to have to read it. We're going to have to leave it there. Nick Summers, thank you so much. Editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. You can get more at uh, the magazine or on BloombergBusinessWeek.com. Well, in the studio with me here at Pier 3 is Sarah Fryer. She's a technology reporter for Bloomberg. And we're going to talk a little bit about Snap and uh, to today's headline. Uh, it is the last day of Q1, and Snap has made a move. Looks like it's continuing its plan. What went down? Well, Snap is doing the latest round of restructuring, cutting 100 employees from the ad side of the business. This is following cuts that they already did in engineering and in content. So, rounding out this big project that they've been doing to try to make sure that after all the fast hiring they've done to build up their advertising business that they're they you know maybe went a little too far and are now figuring out which employees are useful and which ones aren't um really hard day for a lot of people in venice today yeah Yeah, i've been blown out on the last day of a quarter before it's never fun uh so after IPO and a lot of really kind of nightmarish revenue quarters, they started to show a little bit of growth in Q4. Does this cut, may, well, I guess you'd say, make it right-sized when it comes to its labor force? 
oh, Snap has ha- <laughs> Snap is at a point where it's spending a whole lot more than it makes. It's it's still you know losing money. The company uh, has to pay Google and Amazon for server space. They don't own their own servers. That's a huge cost. And then you know thousands of employees around the world, all of these offices, they're in a position that's really difficult because they're trying to carve out. A, a small slice of this market that's just dominated by Google and Facebook. Right. And in order to truly compete, they need to have the staff to do it, um, but they also need to be really uh, nimble and consider, considering, you know, what resources they actually must have versus, you know, what they can afford to do without. And so it's going to be it's going to be tough. So it's interesting. You know, if I could just jump in for a second, you know, what's interesting, Sarah, is too. So as they're cut back workers and maybe figure out the kind of workers they really need to build this business, I'm thinking about, you know, Evan Spiegel and the other people in the C-suite. Do they have the right people at the top of the employee ladder, if you will, to do what SNAP needs to do? Well, you make a really great point because that is one of the problems right now with employee morale. The top of SNAP uh, has been very turbulent. There's been a lot of uh, comings and goings. Uh, They're head of engineering, they're head of product, they're head of legal. and I, I think that you know one other. These people have departed the company in the last few months and been replaced with internal candidates who I'm told, from my sources, are less likely to say no to Evan Spiegel, who has a kind of a dictatorial control over the company and, of course, all of the voting power. You know, during the IPO, Evan Spiegel. I remember reading that Evan Spiegel was looked at kind of like a Steve Jobs, specifically because of hardware. Is there any update on the hardware side? Because I think they've kind of fallen flat so far, haven't they? So we've heard that they are planning on working on a, an update of their spectacles glasses. But you're right, that has not made a big dent in sort of the consumer hardware market. Spectacles were a really great marketing experiment in the end of 2016, but uh, they didn't really catch on widely. Do you see people walking down the street right. with their Snap Spectacles? I mean, I I really don't, and I'm no. in San Francisco. <laughs> so so it, it's... It is going to be tough for them to really prove to people that that kind of product is something that they need, but they're certainly still working on it. Let me ask you a quick marketing question about Snap, too. It's kind of a the hand that feeds question, okay? So when you are courting people like Rihanna and Kylie Jenner, and then they turn on you and you lose $1.3 billion after some, some pushback on Snap, and that was just with the, the Jenner uh, Snap, um, well... How do you deal with that? How do you strategize for that if you are SNAP? Do you court them? Do you do you pull them in? Do you make them involved? Well, SNAP has historically not had to do that. The company was cool enough that all the young celebrities wanted to use it, like Kylie Jenner, like Chrissy Teigen, who this weekend also tweeted out her disfa- dissatisfaction mm. with SNAP. Um, now the company is starting to realize that it might need to, and, and they're working on ways to uh, let influencers make money off the platform. It's going to become even more difficult because the way the Snap, that Snap redesigned Snapchat recently, mm. they split the social from the media. So in the in the traditional uh, business model for social media, your friends bring you to look at the content from everyone else, right? You're looking for your friend content and updates, but then there's you know some celebrity news thrown in there and there's some uh, news news. 
Snap has separated those. So now in order to go to the the media side of, of Snapchat, there needs to be a draw there. You need to really have those celebrities putting out really great content. But celebrities have complained that their fans can't find them on Snap anymore after the redesign, that they're not coming and watching their stories, so why should they post? So it's going to be, you're right, they are going to have to do a lot more work to try to convince celebrities that Snap is the place to be. Well, it's interesting, too, that that whole controversy that involved Rihanna, you know, Snap had come out and said that ad should never have appeared on their service. I'm just curious, too, about their screening process. And they, like Facebook and others, will come under more scrutiny. So just to recap, that ad asked users if they were if they would prefer to punch Chris Chris Brown or right. slap Rihanna, which of course those two have a history of domestic violence, so it was very ill received. Um, right. Should not have gone through the system. Snap has been transitioning in the last few months. This is another major shift in their business. They've been transitioning to this automated ad serving system, kind of like Facebook has, um, where people people can just buy ads via a, a site where they don't have to interact with humans. And of course, we've seen all sorts of problems that, that have caught that has caused for Facebook. Right. And, you know, Snap can't, uh, you know, they, they've sort of talked about how this is more, they are having, they have a higher touch screening process than Facebook does. But certainly, they're going to have to think more about that, especially as the business grows. Facebook can't hire enough people to screen all those ads. Right. It's like we're, we're starting to grow up in the world of social media and there's some consequences and accountability. Sarah Fryer, always great to talk with you. As technology reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again How appropriate is this? You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Jason Middleton with me, my co-host. He's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco and at the New York Auto Show. We've got our own Carl Riccadonna on the road checking out cars. He's our chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics. Wait a minute. So, Carl Riccadonna, are you there for fun or for work or a little bit of both? Uh, I am there for the pleasure of work. And ironically, you're playing Willie Nelson's on the road again. And I came here by a subway. But uh, go figure. That's New York. <laughs> Wait, why are you there for work? Tell me what's going on. Well, uh, all the news here is uh, about uh, the uh, U.S. demand for autos, uh, the uh, potential impact of uh, import tariffs on uh, imported uh, car prices and uh, how this is likely to play out. Uh, but, uh, you know, w- one important uh, sub-story here, uh, there's this ongoing narrative of uh, peak autos uh, for the U.S. Uh, economic expansion. And, uh, you know, certainly if we uh, look back at the uh, run rate of motor vehicle sales, uh, we, we've flirted with an 18 million run rate. Uh, then we uh, petered out towards uh, 17 million. And I think uh, on April 3rd, when we get the uh, March results for unimotor vehicle sales, uh, we could slide even a little bit further. But I would caution because motor vehicle sales are very sensitive. You don't, you don't go out to a dealership when there's uh, two feet of snow in the dealership parking lot. Uh, so I suspect that the March data may overstate uh, the weakness that, that we're seeing uh, from uh, consumers uh, at the moment. And to be sure, uh, Q1 has not been a great quarter for consumers. Uh, we'll all be glad to leave that behind us uh, when the next quarter uh, starts uh, uh, next week. 
Carl, quick uh, tw- trade question for you, because President Trump was talking a little bit this morning about uh, South Korea and the, the new deal there. He may hold it up while they talk to North Korea. But I was noticing that the, the, ter- uh, the, the quotas and access around automobiles is intended to go up and access to the South Korean market is intended to go up as well. Has that d- been discussed down there or uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, that's uh, clearly a focus here, and uh, auto producers are going to be one of the uh, categories uh, hit most significantly by uh, steel uh, and aluminum uh, tariffs. Uh, you know, as we heard from uh, Wilbur Ross uh, earlier today on uh, Bloomberg Television, uh, a lot of producers uh, really won't face a significant increase, so there's a lot of uh, 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 belly aching in the media about uh, the price of a can of beer or a, a can of soup. Uh, and uh, really, that's a marginal input cost. But when we're talking about the auto sector, it really is uh, material. Uh, but what we're seeing is uh, exemption after exemption uh, in these trade negotiations. So uh, things seem to have a very negative sticker shock initially, uh, and then that fades as uh, the lobbying behind the scenes uh, takes place even in the case of China. And we've seen, right, Carl, global vehicle manufacturers, they have gotten, you know, increasingly they manufacture in the market that they sell. Like we see that. That's part of kind of getting access off into a market is you got to create a plant that creates jobs and kicks back to the economy. So to some extent, that kind of tempers any trade impact. That tempers to uh, some degree. However, the supply chains are extremely right. globalized. And so while that assembly plant may be for BMW, maybe in uh, the U.S. Uh, southeast, uh, a lot of those parts are coming across the border from Canada, Mexico, uh, and uh, also uh, Asia. So uh, that's really the effort of the administration at this point is to somehow uh, strong arm uh, those uh, supply chains into reconsidering uh, moving on to U.S. soil. Uh, the problem is, uh, if the expectation, right, these types of investments for plants and supply chains are uh, very expensive. And so if the expectation is uh, that you simply have to outlive the Trump administration, uh, yeah. whether it ends in uh, two years or six years, uh, you're probably not going to make those substantial investments. Just quickly, Carl, you driving any new vehicle home tonight? Uh, <laughs> I'll see if there's any uh, stairs laying around the back, but uh, that's doubtful. I don't think a Bentley. You would look good in a Bentley. All right, Carl Ricadon, <laughs> our chief U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics at the New York International Auto Show at the Javits Center. Now let's head to San Francisco. Dana Hull is with us, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Great story uh, that she has. In fact, it's an exclusive. She's taking a look at Tesla and uh, what they're doing to prove haters wrong. Uh, Dana, tell us about the story. Well, basically, uh, Bloomberg obtained two internal emails. Uh, The first was from a production executive who kind of, you know, talked about how they're going to actually shut down SNX production uh, on Friday and offered employees the opportunity, if they chose to do so, to come help work on the Model 3. Uh, The second email is from Doug Field, who's the vice president of engineering, and it's this real, like, sort of great corporate memo that's rallying the troops to hit these production targets and prove the haters wrong. And so it's just this kind of fascinating insight into the culture at Tesla during this critical week in the company's history. Yeah, Doug Field wrote in that email, which is great. Let's make them regret ever betting against this because Tesla is, if not the most shorted company right now, it's one of the top three or five at the very best. Uh, It's hard to get a grip on their esprit de corps, though, because Elon sets these aggressive 
uh, production goals, and then they don't meet them, and then investors push back. And I hear that he can be a very exacting person to work with. Do you find that that Doug Field has kind of rallied, like you said, rallied the troops like all the way up and down, and we might hit this 300 per week for the Model 3? Yeah, well, to be, so to be clear, these emails were sent last week, so we're getting them, you know, a little bit, a little bit late. These these were not emails that were sent like yesterday, but clearly, I mean, Tesla has had a horrible week in terms of the bond price, the stock price. I mean, there's been this sort of torrent of bad news, and you know, when their backs are against the wall and everything, everyone is doubting them. That's actually when they sort of are at their best in an odd way. I mean, they rise to the occasion and like they they lay out the stakes. They try to inspire everyone, like, you know, come on, team, we can do this. And so, um, you know. They they had promised that they would exit the quarter at 2,500 Model 3s a week. Over the past couple of weeks, you've seen a lot of analysts say there's no way they're going to meet that. But if Doug's you know, memo inspires them to kind of pull this out, they could actually pull it off. Um, I don't know what they're at now, but the but the email says that they were at 200 cars a day, and they're they're pushing they're trying to push through 300 cars a day. So they are going to be working like crazy over this, you know, as we go into the Easter weekend to 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 get this. But we, we won't really know um, how they did until the numbers come out early next week. Right, and Jason, you mentioned short hit interest. On- on Tesla as a percentage of free flow, it's up to its highest since May of 2017, ahead of those production targets. Um, that's going to be key, at least in the short term, Dana. Make or break those numbers next week. Just got about 20 seconds. Yeah, it'll it'll be a real it'll be it'll be key because what investors want to know is it's not just are they making twenty five hundred a week but can they sustain that figure I mean yeah. are they hitting it and can they keep it going and they need to get the cars out the door to recognize revenue if they're if they're not getting the cars out the door they're going to have to raise money sooner. All right, always our go to person when it comes to Tesla, Dana Hull. Thank you very much, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Check out uh, her on Twitter at Dana Hull. Also go to Bloomberg.com. Shares of Tesla, by the way, though they are up. 1.9%. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. We have Scott Galloway. He is the founder of L2. He's also a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. And Scott, it says here that you are one of the world's 50 best business school professors as of 2012. Have you been able to keep that going? Yeah, I think I came in about 49th and have dropped substantially since then, but hopefully. hopefully. Well, Scott, let's talk a little bit about Facebook, uh, mostly because uh, the headline today, at least, and we've been following this, of course, as you have, uh, millions of dollars in possible FTC fines over the data crisis. My first reaction to that is, okay, that's probably true, but isn't really the regulatory thing and the fining going to come from the EU? Oh, absolutely, Jason. Uh, uh, You're about to see uh, Margaret, um, excuse me, Marguerite Bessiger go gangster on Facebook. There's there's more regulation in a month or progress, whatever you would want to call it, against against big tech in Europe than there has been to date in the U.S. You have Britain talking about regulating uh, Facebook and Google or Facebook and Twitter as media companies. We have France talking about taxing them on their top-line revenues as they're always able to somehow show no profits despite being some of the most profitable companies in the world. You have the GDRP. So, yeah, it's like all the major conflicts of the 20th century, the war against big tech is going to break out in continental Europe. So what does it mean then, Scott, for these businesses that have certainly carved out a really big spot in our worlds today and really big, big businesses? What does it mean for their future? Well, I think it depends which one. I think Facebook has kind of unwittingly become the poster children for bad behavior. You know, I don't know if you saw uh, the interview with Kara Swisher and 
MSNBC, uh, Tim Cook, but he just came mm -hmm. across as sort of the adult in the room as Cheryl and Mark were hiding under their hiding under their beds upstairs. He, mm -hmm. this is really sort of he kind of has established himself as the the adult in the room. I think that Facebook is going to see multiple contraction under the threat of regulation. I think all the the the, the saber rattling out of the White House around Amazon will be forgotten and it's really just sort of a non-event. Google's is sort of trying to hide and stay out of the way of the bullets coming at Facebook. And, you know, Apple appears for the time being to be sort of looking looking pretty good. So, look, at the end of the day, the consumers love these products. It's hard to see slowing them down, even if, you know, even if you argue they should be slowed down. But the revolution won't be led by consumers. I don't think it'll be led in the U.S. I think it'll be led out of Europe. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's think about this for a second because Steve really, Steve Jobs really kind of baked privacy into Apple's DNA. Tim Cook is the adult in the room. What did you see with Mark Buck Zuckerberg's apology? Did I because we're seven years into this uh, consent decree with Facebook, we have what thirteen more years to go, and it sure sounds like he just kind of promised to do what he already promised to do. Really. Yeah, I think we're in the midst of what is will go down as the worst handled crisis in modern business history because there's only three things you need to remember in a crisis. One, the top guy or gal has to sort of acknowledge the issue. He or she has to be seen as engaging with the issue directly. And then most importantly, you have to overcorrect. You have to clear all the shelves of every bottle of Tylenol, even if it was an isolated incident. And Facebook sort of threw up on all three. That First off, you know, they were nowhere to be found for several days, which got people angrier and angrier. Yeah, I would argue they haven't really acknowledged the issue. I mean, they are actually doing some stuff behind the scenes. But, for example, why wouldn't they say, until further notice, we're seizing all political advertising? I mean, why wouldn't they say that the, the Commonwealth is more important than anything else here and try and overcorrect a bit? Instead, we've seen nothing of the likes. This is literally a textbook case study on how not to handle a crisis. Why didn't they do that, Scott? Well, I think it's difficult. Keep in mind, we have a 33-year-old who now oversees a community that is greater, more vast than Christianity. So imagine Fidel Castro, who took power at 33, and then add the population of the entire Southern Hemisphere. I, I believe Mark Zuckerberg is the most powerful person in the world. And 12 months ago, proposed a three-class share structure where he would be able to sell all of his shares and still control the company, which, in my view, is the equivalent of an information-age autocrat. I don't think he is what I'd call a very thoughtful person. I think it's easy to see how he's become incredibly insular. Mm. But I think this is a company where the, the, the management is toned up. But Sandberg, I hate to put out anybody's age, and certainly a woman's age, but she's 48. She is, I would think, hopefully the adult in the room. Does that mean that you know, Zuckerberg is just not even listening to maybe somebody like Cheryl, potentially? I don't know. I think, I, I think Cheryl took a huge hit here. I would have argued yeah. that Cheryl was potentially a front-runner for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. And my, it feels to me like she's doing nothing but managing her brand and trying to avoid the third rail that is this controversy. And what history tells us is that leaders are anointed by the risks they take, not the risks they avoid. Mm -hmm. And she has really, really punted on this. And in my opinion, kind of been been a wall I, I i think she's i think in all of this from a leadership and a brand perspective she's probably the biggest loser
when young entrepreneurs started Google, they brought an adult into the room. It was bad optics for her to have uh, the anniversary of her book, Lean In, and the New York Times special section on Sunday when this all broke. I know that yeah. those are report those are reported, I, I know, a month before. Still bad optics. He, she could have made a call in. She could have done something. I just I, I agree with you that, that, that hiding out is not a very good thing. Um, Scott, we only have a, about another minute or so, but I want to quickly talk about Amazon. Um, where Where is Amazon now? It's up again today now that the now that the White House says that they are not going to specifically go after Amazon just get about 40 seconds Scott yeah I, you know, I, I've been saying for a long time Amazon is going to be the first trillion dollar market cap company in the history of business I think it's going to blow by Apple I think any dip, dip here is short term uh, if if the White House tries to take on Amazon it is McGregor Mayweather part two and that is the redhead gets the crap kicked out of them Amazon has 88 full-time lobbyists the White House doesn't have the domain expertise or the will to take on big tech. They are outgunned. Amazon, this is barely going to be a speed bump for Amazon. Scott, I love having you on for a lot of reasons, but most of all, there's like a million quotes I want to throw out on Twitter after a conversation with you. Scott Galloway, always informative, professor of marketing, NYU Stern School of Business. Check out his book. It's called The Four. It's a great read. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Middleton with Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg, and we are driving to the close this afternoon with Alan Zeffrin, Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager at First Republic Investment Management, just down the peninsula here from San Francisco in Palo Alto, with 52.7 billion assets under management. Alan, thanks for joining us. Um, I, I want to kind of I looked at your slide deck and you said you like stocks better than bonds, bonds better than cash. Let's push the first domino and go right into why you like stocks better right now, even given all the volatility we've seen this month. Jason, uh, thanks for having me on. Look, at, at the end of the day, the volatility is just shaking people out. But a lot of the conditions that you expect to be supportive for equities are still in place. You've got on a technical basis, high beta stocks still outperforming low beta stocks. You've got industrial metals outperforming precious metals. You've got the IPO index outperforming the S&P 500. You've got 80% positive earnings surprises. You've got the consumer comfort index uh, near a 17-year high. All these things tell you that the backdrop for the economy is pretty darn good, and that's not the typical environment where the equity market's going to crash. Yeah, that, that earnings number you pulled out right there is really indicative of something else. But there's something else, you, you know, with stocks, bonds, cash, but the gaps between these asset classes are narrowing a little bit. Isn't that kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when investors start seeing that gap narrowing, they kind of risk off a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what's going on. Really what volatility is, is an acceleration of a, a recognition that stocks on the margin become less attractive as bond yields go up and mm -hmm. stocks become less attractive as cash starts going up. And one interesting data point, if you actually were to plot it over time, when your real return on cash becomes positive, it's generally the precursor to an increase in equity market volatility. So let me define that. Uh -huh. If you take the three-month T-bill and subtract your inflation rate, once that becomes positive, 
you start to see increased volatility in the market. That's happened in the past in history, and it's happening right now. So we just hit, we're about 1.7% on a three-month T-bill. And if core inflation is about 1.6%, we just broke. We're just recently breaking a positive figure. And if you mm. plot the last time we've been at a real rate of return that's positive in cash, you have to go back to early in 2009. It, 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 you just get lots of volatility, typically, when you get these spikes uh, once in real rates of return of cash go up. So if you think of it this way, the more you get paid to take zero risk, the more you have to demand an expected return when making an investment. So I would expect stocks to be more challenged once I get paid more to take literally zero risk. Is that one of the conditions that you've been watching when it comes to what might typically precede a, a potential bear market? Like, is that one of the numbers that you keep? I'm asking what, what metrics do you prioritize as you're trying to look and see what might be coming down the pike? Is it, is it an equity bear market or is it not? It's just a long correction, possibly. Yeah, no, it's a, we, we look at that as one of many factors. Typically, right at the starting point, we expect elevated volatility, but that in and of itself isn't enough to tell you you're going to go into a bear market. What you would actually be looking for are things. Fundamentally, you'd probably see weakening earnings. You'd probably see uh, widening credit spreads, low-quality companies, their borrowing costs would go up. What you'd see technically in the market, you would see probably a shift toward defensive leadership and consumer staples and utility stocks. You'd probably see, from a sentiment standpoint, a big increase in IPOs and lots of M&A and wildly excessive flows into stocks, all saying that everyone's getting too excited. And I would tell you right now we see virtually none of those things, which is why I assert uh, I don't think a crash is coming anytime soon. I don't want to overly be too overly optimistic. I think valuations are above average here. So your expected rate of return, if you're looking out on a three- to five-year horizon, is probably somewhat below average. But the reality is... The typical fundamental and technical and sentiment factors that drive a market to crash, very few of them are present now. I don't want to pile on. I don't want to necessarily pile on the the bullish mode here, but let me just throw out a story. I like following what Laszlo Borini does, and he follows those big block trades, what the institutional money is doing. And he said, with even all the turmoil over some of the big names, the Fang stocks, the big tech names, he said consistent buying from big money managers is one of the reasons he's still confident that this bull market is over and he tracks those flows and block trades and and he said money kept piling into tech stocks even as the Nasdaq 100 has fallen in all but three days since March 12th so you know there's still faith Alan in the market's biggest industry there's still faith uh, I will acknowledge we're in a range bound market for the time uh, being uh, Laszlo Brini said we're going to go back to the peak we hit in January by this August, well, I'm sorry, by this June, which June, would be about right. an eight, yeah, would be about an 8% increase from today's prices. So, um, sure, we're, we're still in a world where you've got a lot of uncertainties politically. You have the Fed beginning to tighten monetary policy. It's the 10th year in a bull market. Valuations are above average. Inflation is starting to tick up. I got all that. That's why you get volatility. But earnings are still growing. Uh, people feel a little more comfortable. On average, the average U.S. citizen, actually, their tax rate has gone down. Um, 
people feel a little bit more comfortable for the moment economically, and that's the kind of environment that typically allows the markets to grind their way higher. All right. Good to check in with you on this Thursday. Alan, thank you. Alan Zafrin back with us today, Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Investment Management, $52.7 billion in assets under management. Alan joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, along with Jason Middleton. We've got the close coming your way in just a moment right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.